All right. Well, we are uh, still in uh, Genesis chapter 19, as we have been for the last couple of weeks. And uh, this, is, of course, is the, uh, we think of it as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, as I was thinking on it this week, uh, and on today's lesson, we're actually going to be talking about the actual judgment on the cities. Uh, but really, chapter 19 really isn't about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's really about Lot. Have you noticed that? <laughs> this is really Lot's story. And, uh, and Sodom and Gomorrah are just kind of incidental. They're just part of Lot's story. Uh, so uh, that's why so much of our focus for the last couple weeks has been on on Lot and his family and his situation and uh, that type of thing. So, anyway, but last uh, last week uh, we looked. Uh, let's see, I believe we uh, started in about uh, verse 12, and we got down through about verse 22 or 23. Uh, we didn't quite finish everything that I was hoping to finish last week, so we will finish that and go on. And hopefully we'll finish uh, Lot's story uh, today, so hopefully we'll get through the rest of the chapter, but we have a great deal to cover in order to do that. So uh, today we'll pick it up beginning in verse 23 and down through the end of the chapter. But before we read that, uh, once you look back at those verses that we looked at last week, uh, particularly, or even the last couple weeks, and tell me what you remember that we've talked about. And those of you who weren't here have an excuse. The rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it is important for us to remember that Lot was righteous because uh, we don't get a lot of that reading chapter 19. Actually, it is in there and you can see it. But it is important for us to remember the lost righteous because the chapter focuses so much on the mistakes that he made. And the reason it's important for us to know that he's righteous is to remember that it's possible for us to make the same kind of mistakes that, that Lot made and, and to do it on a pretty massive scale too, as Lot did. So there's a lot of warning in Lot's life for us. What else? Okay. Okay. What? Why do you think they reacted that way? Okay. Okay. He'd obviously lived such a life of compromise in front of these guys who were going to marry his daughters that when he came to them with this really urgent message that that uh, Sodom was going to be destroyed. They didn't take him seriously. And, and the conclusion that I reached from that is, that is that Lot never really communicated to others that he took seriously the things of God. So when he did talk to people about the things of God, they didn't take him seriously. And, uh, 
And, and that's one of the results of compromise in our life, that we, we communicate to others that we really don't take God seriously. And then when it becomes really important that we do talk to them about the things of God, uh, then they think, well, is this person really really serious about this? Is this really, really true? Anything else? What was Lot's reaction when the angels told him he needed to get out of the city? Okay, why did he do that? Okay. Yeah, he had his whole life invested in this city, <laughs> and he had he had no investment in the, in eternal things. His whole investment, his whole his whole his heart was wrapped up in the bank of Sodom, and and so it was very difficult for him to pull himself away. And and we, you know, I I don't know what's going to happen when the Lord returns, and I don't know uh, how we're all going to respond, but. But when I read that story of Lot, I really wonder how many Christians there will be, really born-again believers, who are reluctant to see the Lord's return because their heart is invested in this life and here in this world. And, uh, and, I, and I hope and I trust that that won't be any of us, that we'll have our investment in eternity. What else? Anything else? Uh, yeah, that lots. Uh, what did you say? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, how, how did I word that now? I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, we were talking about uh, we were talking about the fact that that. Lot in his negotiation with the angels, they told him to flee to the flee to the mountains, and and he says, "Oh no, I can't. I can't you know the, the destruction will catch me. I can't make it up there fast enough. How about if I go to Zor?" And he stresses the littleness of this little city of Zor, which was one of the five cities of the Pentapolis, and was therefore one of the five cities that was under the judgment of God. We always talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, but there were actually five cities that God originally intended to judge and destroy. And Zor was one of them. But Lot argues with the angel, why don't you let me go to Zor? And, and he, he basically is asking the Lord to exempt Zor from this judgment. Uh, and his argument is, it's just a little place. And he says that twice. It's just a little place. And the idea is, is that Lot is, what Lot is arguing is that, is that Zor's sin is so insignificant that God can overlook that. And it, and it contrasts so much with Abraham's prayer. Both of them really, Abraham's prayer in chapter 18 and Lot's request here of the angels in chapter 19, both of them are requesting that a city be spared. Abraham's requesting that a city be spared. And he starts with his prayer. He goes 50, 40, uh, 50 45, 40, etc., etc., etc. And, and he's requesting that God spare the city if there are so many righteous in it. Abraham's, or Lot is asking... Uh, God to spare the city because its sin is so insignificant. And the contrast between those two mentalities is to me just quite striking. That Ab- the, the, the basis of Abraham's request was the power and the influence of righteousness on the heart of God. And the, and the, and the basis and the argument of Lot's request is, well, 
the sin here is really not all that big. It's not all that significant. And you see the difference there between the life of Abraham and the constant compromises of Lot. That, that was basically his, his whole life for the last 15 years or so at least was that, that little sins really weren't all, that, weren't all that much of an issue. And that's really kind of the root of compromise, isn't it? The idea that, that a little bit of sin is okay to overlook. So. One of the observations, Steve, is that the sin in some is more against the same here that it spreads. Yes. Yes. And, I mean, you can see that here in the world, yeah. that all the different countries are accepting homosexuality and not just spreading from country to Yeah. 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 And abortion and, yeah, yeah. And uh, and we'll touch a little bit on that today too. Yeah, it's it's wickedness and its influence is obviously spreading and increasing and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well let's go back to chapter 19 then and pick it up in verse 23. Uh, uh, Lot has been given permission to go to the city of Zor, and so it says the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow and he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Lot went up from Zor and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. And they stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when he arose, when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that he may preserve our family, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Then both of the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Let me make sure I'm running here. I am good. Okay. Uh, okay, so as the story unfolds now, Lot and uh, Lot and his uh, and his wife and his two daughters are now fleeing from the city and they and Lot arrives in the city of Zor. And then the next two verses, twenty four and twenty five, describe the actual judgment on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, as I mentioned, 
the judgment on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the judgment on the cities there and the other cities there of the valley, uh, four cities altogether that were judged and destroyed, uh, that really is kind of incidental to the real story of Genesis chapter 19, which is the story of Lot. But it is an important story. And the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah becomes, if you will, a paradigm throughout Scripture of the judgment of God. So, periodically throughout Scripture, God goes back and refers to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah to illustrate to the Israelites and, and, and later to uh, in the ministry of Christ and at other times and even uh, later in the New Testament to the church. He goes back and he refers to this judgment of the, on Sodom and Gomorrah to illustrate certain points to us about the justice of God and the judgment of God and the righteousness of God, righteousness of God and the nature of judgment and that sort of thing. So, so even though it is really an incidental uh, uh, issue in chapter 19, it's an important issue. It's an important issue that the Lord brings up repeatedly throughout Scripture. So we want to be sure that we understand it. And we come to that point now in the narrative uh, where we need to uh, we need to get a, a handle on it. And, you know, when we read the story, I think typically if you, somebody mentions to us Sodom and Gomorrah or whatever, or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's two things usually that kind of pop in our mind. One is the fact that, that one of the characteristics of the wickedness of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah was their, uh, their blatant, vagrant, open uh, uh, homosexuality. Okay, That's usually one of the first things that pops in our mind. And the second thing that pops in our mind is this place that God just obliterated and destroyed and it was judged. Okay, And it's very easy for us just to go, okay, that's the place that was really wicked because they were homosexuals and, and there were a bunch of perverts there and so God just destroyed them and wiped them off the face of the earth and then we just go on. But there... There's really a lot more to the story than that and a lot more for us to think about. And as I mentioned at the close last week, there's some real problems that we face with this whole story of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we're going to tackle some of those today and it won't be easy. You're going to have to really do some thinking because uh, we're going to raise an issue with some things that Jesus said about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah that I think ought to give us pause and make us stop and, and think. Okay, So we're going to address some of those things today even though they aren't directly addressed in chapter 19. Uh, first, though, let me, uh, let me just ask this question. What is the reason that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah? What is the reason that God overthrew them? And this is not a trick question. This is very simple, folks. Okay. If you go back to when you talked to Abram, you told him, you said, we're going down to see if the sin and the wickedness down there is as bad as what we've heard. Okay. And if, if it's not, then that's one thing, but if it is, we'll know it. Okay. Okay. Great. So, the simple answer to the question is? Wickedness. Wickedness. Okay. And, and we discover, as we've talked in the last couple of weeks, that their wickedness was not exclusively the sin of homosexuality. Okay. That was one aspect or one dimension of their sin. But they were very, they were very wicked. Uh, so when I speak of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're speaking of all the cities of the plain there and the valley there around them. Uh, it was a very wicked place. They were oppressive. They were violent. Uh, uh, they were sexually immoral, both uh, in, uh, in regards to adultery and homosexuality. It was just a very excessively wicked and perverted place. Okay, 
And so we don't want to we don't want to just narrowly focus on one sin, uh, even though that is a very grievous and important aspect of their offense against God. That is only one part of their offense against God. Okay. And actually, as we'll see as we go forward in the lesson today, their wickedness tells us something about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and what they knew about God. But we'll, go, we'll get into that in just a little bit. But they were an excessively wicked city. Okay, um, So, we know the reason for the judgment. Now, the question is, what was the extent of the judgment? According to verses 24 and 25. Okay, it was death. <laughs> They were destroyed. They were. It was total. They were just removed from the face of the earth. Okay. Even what grew on the ground. He just basically just decimated the whole valley. Okay. Now, when you think about that, in contrast to our first introduction to that valley back in chapter 13, when Lot and Abraham were at Bethel and and they decided that they could no longer live together because they just had there was just so much. They had so much wealth, they couldn't all both live in the same region, so they needed to separate and go two separate ways. And Lot went down to the valley, and we discovered that the valley was very lush, beautiful. It was probably uh, the most bountiful place in all of the region around Canaan. Okay, So it was an extremely beautiful place. Well, if you've been to uh, the region of the Dead Sea, uh, if any of you have traveled there, uh, I've been close to that area. I can assure you it's anything but. Uh, beautiful now, unless you like barren desert. Okay, so um, uh, clearly God just really obliterated things, and we don't we don't know exactly what all the consequences, the results were. But a lot of commentators and and biblical archaeologists and et cetera people believe that the extent of the Dead Sea now is partly. Uh, a result of this judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. The northern end of the Dead Sea is quite deep. It's about 1,300 feet deep or so. But the southern end of the, of the Dead Sea is only about 16 feet deep. Okay? And so there's the suggestion there that Sodom and Gomorrah actually eventually were totally just uh, covered over by the Dead Sea. We don't know for sure. Okay? But anyway, God brings down this judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, totally annihilates them with the use of of uh, what, it, what it calls brimstone, which is a kind of a sulfur thing. Uh, and either this brimstone was burning or it was accompanied with fire. He says he brought down on them brimstone and fire, which is a tip, which he then uh, becomes kind of a typical, typical expression for the judgment of God as you go on through Scripture. There's a lot of references to God's bringing brimstone down, and we even get into that in the book of Revelation. Okay. So there's this horrendous judgment that comes out of comes from God and that is stressed to us twice in the passage. It's from the Lord. It's from the Lord and it comes out of heaven this terrible judgment. It's not a natural thing like an earthquake or a volcanic eruption or something uh, eruption or something. It's an actual miraculous judgment by the hand of God out of heaven. Okay? That's pretty clear. And uh, so that is the extent of the judgment. Now, another thing we want to think about is the timing of the judgment, and this will bring up some interesting questions. Why did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah now? Why didn't He do it a year earlier or a year later? Why did He judge Sodom and Gomorrah now? Abraham's promised child is coming. 
Okay, okay. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, we're, we're right on the verge of the birth of Isaac, so that may have been part of it, that the Lord wanted uh, perhaps a more wholesome environment for him to grow. Uh, well, uh, possibly, but uh, I don't know exactly how. <laughs> I think there are some things that are clear. Let me put it that way. Some are more oblique, like what we just raised, but I think some things are clear, yes. And it seems like the timing was based on the fact that they reached a certain point in their wickedness. Okay, and what makes you say that? Okay, now, so this is important. We want to remember the importance of this idea of the outcry. The scripture expresses uh, the importance of this issue of the outcry, that there had been this outcry that God had heard in heaven, okay? And we talked about that outcry. Uh, back when we were looking at, at Abraham's encounter with God there in chapter 18. But there's this, this outcry that reaches heaven. Okay? And, and, and the Lord indicates to Abraham, uh, and then as the story unfolds, as the narrative unfolds, it becomes clear to us that this outcry has become so great, the angels tell this to Lot, that the outcry to the Lord has become so great that the Lord sent the angels to destroy the city. And that's what the angels tell Lot there in his living room that night. Okay? So, this outcry is important. Whatever the outcry is, and we talked about some possibilities of what it is, and I think it's probably a combination of two things. I think one is just the, one, one is just the devastating impact that sin has on the creation, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3. Okay? So, there's this devastating impact that sin has on creation and causes the creation to groan and travail in pain together until now, okay? As, as Paul says in Romans. So, so there's, there's this impact that sin, all sin, not just Adam and Eve's sin, where it's very clear the impact it had on creation, but all sin, and our sin as well, has this impact on creation, and this creates this outcry of creation to God, okay? But I suggest also that we've noticed how exceedingly wicked the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were. And it wasn't just their homosexuality, but it was oppression and violence and all these other things that were going on. So we know that there were many victims, probably both within and without the region of the Pentapolis, who were victims of this great exceeding wickedness. And the outcry of these victims of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah is reaching heaven. And it has now reached, a, reached such a pinnacle or such a peak that it is necessary, it's imperative for God to act. Okay? And it becomes clear as the narrative unfolds that, that it has become a matter of great urgency, right? Isn't that what we saw last week? Last week, the angels, when they're dealing with Lot, Lot keeps dragging his feet and the angels are trying to hurry and get him out of the city, right? That's what, so, on the part of the angels, there's this, in, 
this, this uh, incredible urgency. We've got to get you out of here. You've got, you got to get out of here. You've got to go now. You can't wait any longer. Flee. Escape to the mountains. You know? And, uh, and, 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 and uh, the, word, the word there translated in New American, a couple of places where they, Lot says to his uh, sons-in-law and then the angels say to Lot, up, uh, do such and such. The idea there is hurry, hurry. There's this um, um, just uh, amazing urgency which implies that that there's something significant, and we don't know exactly what it is, but there's something significant in the timing of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's impending. It's immediate. It's about to happen. And the angels are concerned that Lot and his family are not going to get out of there in time. And so they're stressing the urgency of it. Yes, Ron? Uh, one thing of interest. Um, if you go back to Genesis 12, verse 1, Oh, uh, yeah, good. Down. Yeah, good. So we have to assume in that wickedness there was murder there. Yes, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so the, the thing we need to understand, and as we wrestle with some of the difficult questions about the judgment of Sodom, we'll get to in a moment, one of the things we need to keep in mind is this sense of the outcry and the stress in the narrative on the whole issue of the outcry. And that the outcry had reached such a pinnacle. Whatever the outcry involved, whatever it was, and we've made several suggestions here what it probably was, whatever that outcry was, it had reached such a pinnacle of intensity that it was necessary not only for God to act, but for Him to act immediately. Okay? So, so there's a time issue uh, that's at work here. And so the angels come down and they're going to judge the city, but they've got to get Lot out. They've got to get Lot's family out before that judgment and they stress that they need to hurry and don't look back and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll get to some of that uh, in a few minutes. <clears throat> but, now, but now we come to kind of the one, one of the biggest problems about this whole judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and as I said, when we just read the story in Genesis, it seems rather straightforward. They were wicked people and God needed to judge them and so he... He judged them and, and the story goes on. And, you know, occasionally Sodom and Gomorrah gets mentioned again about the judgment of God on the wicked. But, but pretty much, we pretty much forget about Sodom and Gomorrah and we go on with the rest of the story. Until we get into the New Testament. And we get into the ministry of Christ. And if you'll turn over into the book of Matthew. The Lord makes something and I, uh, makes a statement and, and I don't know if it's ever bothered you, but I know it's bothering a lot of people. Okay, So although it's not strictly addressed in Genesis 19, which is our text, uh, I do want to take some time to think about it because it raises some troubling questions about God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what has happened here in Matthew chapter 11 is that John the Baptist has been imprisoned and as he's sitting there in prison, he gets wondering, OK, am, am I really on track here? Am I, am I, have I really been, you know, have I really been communicating uh, what's really true here? And so he, he gets some of his disciples to go and ask Christ uh, to ask Jesus, are you really the one or should we wait for another? OK, and then the Lord sends his answer back to the back uh, to John the Baptist and uh, and you, of course, you know that whole story. He sends the answer back. But then Jesus turns to the crowd. And, and to the crowd, he wants to ask them, OK, 
John's been out there preaching this stuff. What did you what do you really think about John? Who do you think he was? And what was he doing? Okay. And the point that Jesus is trying to make is that John was Elijah. He was the forerunner. Okay? And if John was the forerunner, then I am the coin of word here, forerunner. Okay? I am the object of the forerunner's message. I am the Christ. Okay? And that is the point that Jesus is making here in Matthew chapter 11. But then Jesus focuses on the cities that he that the majority of his ministry was conducted in, okay? And he mentions three cities in particular, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, okay? And the one that's particularly of interest to us today is the city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was the city in which Jesus left after he was forced out of Nazareth, okay? And so Jesus left, and, and until he left then uh, about six or seven months before his crucifixion uh, and left to go south into Judea, uh, he lived his whole uh, years of his ministry there in the city of Capernaum. So about two years uh, or so he spent living in the city of Capernaum. And, and you're really familiar with Capernaum because there's a lot of stuff that happened in the life of Christ uh, and in the ministry of Christ in Capernaum. Uh, uh, that's where several of the disciples were called from. Peter, James, John, Matthew, all of them come from Capernaum. Uh, Jesus teaching in the synagogue, uh, the miracle of healing Peter's mother uh, or mother-in-law was in Capernaum. Uh, probably the Sermon on the Mount was preached on a hillside right outside of Capernaum. Uh, the, uh, uh, the miracles with the, the fish and the net and the overlawing, that was, right off the, that was right off the coast of Capernaum. Okay. All of these miracles happened in Capernaum. Okay. And, and many more. Much of the life of Christ and ministry of Christ happened in Capernaum. Okay. But the problem was that Capernaum, although the Lord did have a lot of fruit there, and he saw, like I said, several disciples reached there, and, and, and uh, the centurion with his son, uh, or with his servant that was healed, and that guy obviously seems to have become a believer. There was a lot of fruit there. There were many in the city of Capernaum who did not respond to the preaching of the kingdom of, the kingdom of God. Okay? And, and to that, Jesus... Uh, turns his attention. So in verse 20, it says, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And now come the verses that are particularly pertinent to us. And for you, Capernaum will not, uh, and you, Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. <clears throat> for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Have you ever read that verse before? Has it ever bothered you? Don't say no, okay? Because I don't want to be the only one here that this verse is bothered, okay? Because <laughs> half of our lesson today is, is going to be spent on resolving my problems with this verse. <laughs> okay? But what are the obvious questions that pop in your mind when you read what Jesus said there? Are there really levels of tolerance? Okay, okay. Are there levels of tolerance? 
Why were the miracles not done there? Isn't that the obvious question? If, in fact, Jesus says that the miracles that were done in, in uh, particularly now we're focusing on Capernaum, if the miracles that have been done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have remained to this day. And I go, I mean, I, I, actually, Jesus is making a different point here, okay? Jesus is making a point about, about uh, uh, Capernaum's rejection of the, of the gospel. That's really the point Jesus is making. But I'm so distracted by this other question, I miss, <laughs> I miss Jesus' point because the first thing that pops in my mind was, well, why didn't you do it? If you could have saved the cities, why didn't you do it? So the first question that comes to our mind is, why didn't he do these miracles in Sodom that he did in uh, Capernaum? Just a second, Rick, and I'll get to your comments. Uh, But then there's another question that's implied in the first question, which is what? Okay, that's not the one I was thinking. <laughs> but it goes to the goes pardon. Excuse me. That's apparently what he's saying. <laughs> well, okay. The second question, and and then we'll get to Rick's comment that he wanted to make. Uh, the second question is implied in the first. The first question is why didn't he do it, and the second is is God just. Right? Isn't that what we're asking? Are we asking, okay, is the judge of all the earth just? That was Abraham's question. And that's the question we're left to answer now after Jesus makes this comment, right? Why didn't he do the things in Capernaum? I mean, in in Sodom that he did in Capernaum. And and if he could have done that and, and they would have remained to this day, was he really just in what he did? Was this, was, was this really a just action of God that we're reading about here in chapter 19? Rick, you were going to make a comment. Yes, it was a just action of God. Uh, and I think that the Jews were You're on to it. You're on to it. And what we want to do is we want to spend the next several minutes exploring all those things that you just touched on right there. Okay. The first thing I want to do is I want to ask you this question, and I think the answer is fairly obvious. Do all peoples everywhere get an equal revelation? Okay. Okay. It's obvious not all people get equal revelation. You people are sitting here in the comfort of a Sunday school classroom in mid-America in the middle of the Bible Belt and you've been saturated with the Bible since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, right? 
There are other people all over the world who have never even seen a Bible. Some people never even heard of a Bible. Some people have never even heard of Christ. So it is very clear that not all peoples everywhere receive an equal uh, presentation of the truth, an equal revelation. Okay. So that's one thing we need to understand. Not everybody gets the same truth. By same truth, I mean the same amount of truth. Not everybody gets the same amount of truth. And that's very clear from the things that Paul says in Romans 1 and 2. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, Paul is making it very clear that some people get more revelation than others. And he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. He talks about how the Jews have the law and they have all this sort of stuff. And, and the Gentiles, they don't have that kind of stuff. Okay. So Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 1 and 2 that there is not an equal giving of truth to all peoples everywhere. The second thing that we have to remember is though not everybody gets the same amount of truth, the other point that Paul makes in Romans 1 and 2 is that everybody gets sufficient truth. Okay? Everybody gets sufficient truth. So, and to enable them to respond to God. Okay? And Paul is very explicit on that. That everybody has gotten enough truth, either through the general revelation or through general revelation and specific revelation, that everybody has gotten sufficient truth so that it is just for God to hold them accountable for what they know. Now, it becomes clear from what Jesus says here in Matthew 11 and in other places in Scripture, it becomes clear that the more truth you know, the more you are accountable for. And the more truth you reject, the greater is your judgment. Okay, that's the point that Jesus is making with the cities there where he did all his miracles. Okay, so understanding that first, getting a handle on that. All people do not receive the same amount of truth, but all people do receive sufficient truth. Now we're going to have to wrestle with that. Do they really? Okay, and we're going to have to ask ourselves that question. But the question still remains. Okay, we know that God doesn't give the same amount of truth to everybody, but the question still remains. If the Lord had done the miracles that He did in Capernaum, if He had done those in Lot, or excuse me, in, uh, in uh, Sodom, it says they would have remained. Now, the first thing we need to do is be very careful with what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is not saying they would have been saved in an eternal salvation sense. What he is saying is that the city would not have been removed. Okay? Those are two different things. And it's very clear in Jesus' mind that they are two different things. Because you'll notice in the passage that Jesus talks about them remaining to this day, which clearly they didn't. So they incurred some judgment. But then he says, it will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment then for the city of Capernaum. Meaning that though the people of Sodom and Gomorrah face some judgment in Genesis 19, there is another judgment yet future. That's the, that's the eternal judgment, okay? That's the eternal judgment they yet face. So the Lord is making a distinction between this temporal judgment, which, removed, which involved the removal of the cities, and the eternal judgment in which people will be ultimately punished eternally for their sins. Okay? 
Those are two different things in the mind of Christ, and he draws that distinction in his passage, in, in, his, in his discourse there. Okay? Now, having established that all cities are different, I mean, that, all, that, uh, that people receive different uh, amounts of revelation and amounts of truth, and that God does that for whatever reasons, then we would ask ourselves, well, why, if we know that he could have done this in, Capernaum, in, in, uh, uh, in Sodom, why didn't he do it? We have to remember some things about Capernaum. Capernaum stands unique, alone, and privileged more than any other city in the world throughout human history. Why do I say that? Okay. Because the Christ was there. Because God came down incarnate and lived among them and walked among them and did these miracles and, and taught the things He taught for two solid years. I would suggest to you that in some senses, Capernaum was more privileged even than Jerusalem. I mean, here it was God Himself present in them for two years. No city in the history of the world around the world anywhere has had the privilege that Capernaum had. Now, Capernaum, for whatever reasons, was selected by that, selected to do that. I don't know why specifically Capernaum as opposed to the other cities uh, of the Jews. But one of the reasons that Capernaum was picked because it was a city of the Jews is because it fit into, and Rick touched on this, it fit into... God's redemptive plan. God's plan to effectuate redemption through the seed of Abraham. Right? So, in other words, the Lord chose to do in Capernaum what He chose to do in Capernaum because it was part of His, his plan to effect the blessing upon the nations through the seed of Abraham. So, it had to be a Jewish city. I don't know why it had to be Capernaum specifically, but it had to be a Jewish city. It had to be a city of the descendants of Abraham. So the things that were done in Capernaum had to be done in Capernaum. They could not be done in Sodom. God could not do what He did in Capernaum in Sodom because Capernaum stands unique in redemptive history as part of God's redemptive plan. And so it was necessary those things be done in Capernaum. Furthermore, it was necessary they be done at that moment in history and not earlier in history because we learn that at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. There was a precise timing to God's redemptive plan that had to be carried out in perfect accordance with His timing. And Capernaum fit into that timing. And so the miracles that he did and the works that he did and the things that he taught in Capernaum could only be done at that time in history. They could not be done after that or before that because it was at the right time that Christ died for the ungodly. And the things that happened in Capernaum were things that were necessary to set up that great sacrifice of our Savior on the cross, right? So, so Capernaum stands unique about, of all the cities of the world in the plan and the scheme of God. And we know some reasons for that. We don't know all the reasons for that. 
but we know that it stands as unique. So God could not do in Sodom what he did in Capernaum. So it wasn't that God was just capricious and just said, well, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm more interested in saving Capernaum than I am in saving Sodom. It's that this is how the plan of God, the salvation of the world, carries itself out. Okay. Now, the second thing that I want to point out to you on this issue of timing is we've already established that God judged Sodom also, just as he did what he did in Capernaum according to a particular important timeline or time, uh, time frame, so he judged Sodom according to a particular time frame. That's what we've just established. The cry had reached, the cry to God had reached such a level that God had to act. And we see that he acted with great urgency. The time came. It's going to happen now. We've got to get Lot out of there. Lot, quit fooling around. Quit dragging your feet. Get out of here. Because this judgment is coming and I can't do anything till you get out of here. So there's this tremendous urgency. So there isn't time for God to lollygag around for two years doing miracles. Because there's some, for whatever reason, we don't know what, but there's obviously a clear urgency to the judgment that's coming on Sodom. I don't know what that was. But there was clearly some threshold beyond which God was unwilling to allow the sin of Sodom to go, time-wise. And that dictated that he act. And that he act now. And he couldn't wait around and do two years' worth of miracles and come down and incarnate himself and do all that sort of stuff. It had to happen now. Okay? Now... The other question, so the first question was, why didn't he do the miracles? Okay, I think I've given you some reasons now why he didn't do the miracles in Sodom that he did in Capernaum. The other question was, well, then was he just? Was he just? Well, first of all, there's nothing in Scripture that gives us any indication that God is obligated at all to give us any truth. Nor is there anything in Scripture that tells us that God is obligated to give us any opportunity of salvation, right? So if there's if there's no if God has no obligation to extend the offer of salvation to me even once, then certainly there's nothing in Scripture that says that God is obligated to extend to me the maximum number of possible opportunities for salvation. That's why Paul says, now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. This is your chance. You have no guarantee that you're going to get another chance. This is the day. And, and so, so God is not obligated to Sodom or to Capernaum or to you or I to give us unlimited opportunities to repent. Nor is He obligated to give us any certain amount of knowledge. If the Lord chooses to give you on a scale of knowledge a hundred and he gives to me 50, he has not shortchanged me. He has not failed me or been unjust to me because he only gave me 50 on a scale of truth and he gave to somebody else here a hundred. God has no obligation to give to one to give to all people equal truth. And as we see quite clearly, he doesn't. Okay. So, so he's not 
obligated in any way to Sodom to do more for Sodom than he's already done, even if he had done nothing. And I would suggest to you he'd done a great deal more than nothing. But he was not obligated to do any more than he had done. Now, the question is, what had he done? I was thinking this complicates it further. <laughs> Thanks. There's a lot of ways you can go on this, but I was thinking about why some people perhaps get more chances than others is because people are praying for them. I've seen that in my life, and it even applies to this story because I think Abraham's intercession had an effect and gave Sodom and Gomorrah one more chance. And the angels went down there, and when those guys were struck blind, it should have dawned on them God is in our city, maybe we better think about this, and it didn't. So God is always, even in response to prayer of the saints, giving people one more chance. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, we see quite clearly that Abraham's real intention was praying for Lot, but the side benefit of that was that both his daughters and his wife got more opportunity than they would otherwise have had. Absolutely. And if we ever get this far, we're not going to get that far today. But, but, uh, but I did want to talk about this question of praying for Lot because I think there's some tremendous application there for us in our lives. But, but, uh, but we're, we're still wrestling with this question about, okay, was God really just in this thing? This is where Romans 1 and 2 is really important. You know, you read Romans 1 and 2 and you go, what is that all about? You know, and, and I don't understand that. And you try and hurry on to get to something in Romans you might understand. And it's a long read before you do, right? Okay. This is why Romans 1 and 2 is so important. Because Romans 1 and 2 really does answer this question about is God just when He judges people? And the point of Romans 1 and 2 is that God does not give to all men equal knowledge of truth, but that God does give to all men a sufficient knowledge of truth. And that means that all men have enough knowledge of God to respond to Him in some way that would make it possible for Him to effectuate their salvation. Okay? Now that is clear in Romans 1 and 2. You can't... If you read Romans 1 and 2 carefully, you can't escape that conclusion of Paul. Okay? There's a flip side, too, the way you could argue that. I remember the parable where Jesus went out and the guy hired the workers to work for him all day until they gave you a day's wage. He went out in the noon and hired some more and gave them and went out and right before closing time and they worked an hour and got a day's wage and the guys were bright and he said, you know, I don't know, really, I don't know you anything. Exactly. I want to be merciful to you and kind to you. That's Exactly. You could argue the same thing. Though. Why are some people born like us and have pretty much a good life and some people born with a life is miserable? Yeah. You know, God not there. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. Now, what I want to, what I want to really illustrate here is that when we study the wickedness the depravity of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the valley. It tells us something really profound, if we understand Romans 1 and 2 correctly. The depravity of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah does not tell us that they didn't know about God. It tells us just the opposite. It tells us they did know about God. 
Because Paul's argument in Romans 1 and 2, and the reason I'm not going over there is we just don't have time this morning. So you're going to have to read it on yourself when you go home this afternoon, on your own this afternoon when you go home. You read it and you see if this is not what Paul is arguing. Paul's argument is that in the general revelation, in the creation, God has revealed Himself. He's revealed things about His divine nature, about His eternal attributes, etc., etc. God's nature is sufficiently and character is sufficiently revealed in the general revelation. That By general revelation, I mean those things that are revealed to all men everywhere in creation. Okay? As opposed to specific revelation, which is the book and the prophets and etc. Cetera, et cetera. So in the general revelation, all men have received the knowledge of God. And Paul argues there, beginning in about verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul argues that although all men have that knowledge, some men have rejected it. And when they reject that knowledge, God gives them over to a depraved mind. And then he begins to tell us what the effects of that depraved mind are. And the first thing he describes there in the middle of the chapter are lesbianism and homosexuality. And he talks about those. Okay. But then he goes on and he lists all the other things that are also evidences of that depraved mind. And it's a whole list of wickedness and sin. The kind of things that Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of. And what Paul is arguing is that, is that excessive wickedness, that excessive depravity, if I can use that term, I know that's kind of an oxymoron, that excessive depravity is not an evidence that people have not known God, but rather is an evidence that they did know about God and, and they rejected that. And because they rejected that, God gave them over to all this wickedness. So the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah is evidence that they had at one point known about God and rejected that knowledge. And so God's judgment on them is just because they have rejected the knowledge that God had given to them. And the exceeding depravity that then ensued from God's judgment upon their rejection necessitated this sudden destruction and removal of the city temporarily from the earth. All right? One sidelight, I was thinking that evidence of that is just a few years before Abraham had rescued the whole city. They had to have picked up something from Abraham. I mean, the king of Sodom stood there and watched him give a tithe. Absolutely. They stood there and watched Abraham worship God. Yes. Absolutely. The whole population of Sodom stood there and watched Abraham offer worship and tithes to God through Melchizedek. So they were. God's judgment not only... Not only did he have reasons for not doing in Sodom what he did in Capernaum, but God's judgment of Sodom was completely just. They had sufficient knowledge. And they rejected that knowledge. Okay. Well, we're about out of time. And I really still do want to talk about Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt, which I promised we'd talk about this week. Well, we obviously didn't get there. And uh, so we'll talk about that next week. And, and we do want to talk, of course, about Abraham's prayer. And we do want to talk about the whole... Uh, the whole thing with uh, uh, Lot's daughters and that sort of thing. So, so we'll do all that next week. But, but before we leave this subject that we've been on today, which I think is very important for us to get a handle on, understand the justice of God in judgment. 
It's still very sobering if we go back to Matthew 11 and think about what Jesus said about Capernaum. Because Capernaum was a nice, decent, upright city. You know, they didn't have homosexuals running rampant in the street. They didn't have overt violence and, and overt oppression and all that sort of thing going on in the street. It was a nice, decent, upright city. And when we set Capernaum against Sodom, you just go, Sodom is just so wicked, so polluted, so violent, so evil. And yet, what does Jesus say? That in the final judgment, it will be more tolerable for the city of Sodom than for the city of Capernaum. Why? Because they rejected God. Because they rejected the gospel of the kingdom. And the point is, the point is, is that the rejection of truth revealed is perhaps, can I say this, the greatest of all offenses and the one that incurs the greatest wrath of God. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, they'd, they'd rejected some truth of God, but they hadn't rejected nearly what Capernaum had rejected. And Chorazin and Bethsaida and Jerusalem and the other cities. They, they had not rejected nearly the amount of truth. And so what we discover is where, where, where it is true that God gives to some more truth than others. Woe to you to whom more truth is given. Because to whom much is given, much is also required. And you and I sit here in America today, and we're all sitting here with Bibles on our laps. And we go home and we turn on our computers, and our computers are loaded with Bible software and, and Internet access to all kinds of things about the truth of God. And, of course, a lot of other trash, too. But, or trash, too. But, but I mean, we have, we have access to truth. You and I. You, you and I who who are sitting in this room today and standing in this room today, we have access to truth and to knowledge about God that is, is incomprehensible to most people in the world and to almost everybody in the history of the world. We have it. What will we do with it? What will we do with it? Okay. Well, I was going to finish... Lot story this week, but we didn't get it finished. But I hope we did learn some things today. So, is somebody going to say something more? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For those of us who've been parents, we've learned that fairness is an impossibility, right? <laughs> you cannot be fair with your children. You, you treat them differently because they deserve to be treated differently. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But what's the people's... People always go, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. Well, that's not the question. The question isn't fair. The question is, is it just? And that's a big difference. Thanks for sharing that with your wife, Ron. <laughs> that's a good point. Okay, well, we'll see you next week.